thanks for joining me today. This is Mark Scott. Our fourth episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack continues our 10-part series on the book, You Don't Have to Do That. This episode is a doozy, in my opinion, because it takes on some of the popular Christian teachings surrounding the good book. What is the relationship between the Bible and Jesus, and which one are we supposed to be following anyway? Do we have to take all of the Bible literally to take all of the Bible seriously? In this episode, I try to respectfully challenge the long and commonly held dogma among many churchgoers that the Bible is the Word of God. So hold on for the ride as we examine chapter 3 entitled, A Textbook Case on Missing the Point. So let's jump right in, and I think it's only appropriate that we jump in by talking about Olivia Rodrigo in one of her songs. There are some great lyrics in uh, one of her songs, and the line goes like this. His parents cared more about the Bible than being good to their own child. His parents cared more about the Bible than being good to their own child. Now, interestingly, I think it's a popular idea that these two ideas can be juxtaposed like this. The idea that you can care about the Bible and mistreat your child, um, and those can happen parallel or the idea that you can care about the Bible and be good to your child, that those are in conflict with one another, is a problem. That, that's, that's the issue. And so maybe more accurately, what it would, could say is his parents cared more about their misreading of the Bible than being good to their own child. Uh, and, and the idea that you can have those two things at the same time is a popular notion today precisely because of the way we have misrepresented the Bible. So many today, it's, it's very common that you'll hear people talk about standing for biblical truth, or we, gotta, we, we just need to make sure that we're in a church that's preaching the word, and we need to stand for this idea, this concept, whatever, whatever that one issue is. And so we take an issue out of the Bible and we say, the litmus test for Christianity is whether or not we're going to stand for truth on this issue or that issue. And the problem with that in this popular realm of evangelical Christianity in America today is that it's backwards um, because it's presenting this idea that we must stand for truth, quote unquote, regardless of how we treat people, because that's the most important test of our faith. But Jesus said that the evidence, the proof, the real litmus test, and the proof is the fruit of the Spirit, which is characterized first and foremost by love. We will be known by our love. You will be known as my disciples by your fruit. You will be known as my followers by your love. That's what's going to mark the fact that you are truly followers of Christ. Jesus never made a single issue the main thing. But he did make it a point repeatedly to show that his love was bigger than any single issue, whether it was about the government, money, and taxes, whether it was about um, diet and sacrifice and, and the food we eat and uh, our view towards different beliefs about idols. He, he, he would rise above those issues to show that love was the overriding factor in those cases. An example that I get into in the book is in that day and time was the Sabbath. 
So the Sabbath is was held up as the litmus test, as, as an issue to mark whether or not you were a true believer and faithful by how well you kept the Sabbath. And Jesus comes along and explains how and illustrates and demonstrates in pretty dramatic fashion sometimes how his love supersedes that issue. Some of the most famous words of the New Testament are found in the opening lines of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this presents us with a theological mountain to climb right off the bat, because now we get into this idea of Trinity and the community of God and how God relates with himself and to us. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but what doesn't make any sense, historically speaking, or theologically, really, is to replace the word with the Bible. So in the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. Okay, that that doesn't make sense, although that seems to be what people really teach and believe without coming out and saying it like that, that the Bible is so elevated to this deity status that we idolize it in a way. But now when you replace um, replace it with Jesus, it gives us that theological foundation to build on. You know, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's a more accurate and precise, albeit still mystical and mysterious, but precise reading. So in the book, in chapter 3, the first line I have written is, the Bible is not the word of God. Because I believe in being provocative and getting people upset right off the bat, I guess. Uh, Here's the deal. The Bible is not the word of God in the sense that I'm talking about. Jesus is. Now, I want to clearly state from the beginning, that does not render the Bible irrelevant or meaningless. Quite the opposite. However, evangelical Christianity's misuse of the Bible has warped some fundamental Christian teachings and misrepresented God and Jesus to the world. So what I want to say foundationally is that we need to approach this topic with humility. Um, I do not consider myself a Bible scholar, and I respect those who are. Whether you come from different fields of study or different scholarship, none of us has all of the expertise and none of us has all of the knowledge necessary for full understanding of the Bible on our own. So we must do this work together, and we must do this work humbly. I was listening recently to a podcast called The Holy Post, and one of the episodes, uh, there was an interesting discussion of the difference between collectivist versus individualistic interpretations of Bible passages, which you might get from different cultures or different places around the world. And it raises all kinds of questions about when we need the community to help us in our application of biblical teachings. And, you know, on top of that, one of the things they were unpacking is different words are translated in different ways in different languages with different emphases. 
So there's a lot of differences in this whole translation process. This is not something I get into in the book, by the way. This, this is not in chapter 3. But the example, that's why I want to unpack it here a little bit. The example that they focused on was uh, righteousness versus justice in English and Spanish translations. So just with that one example, that one word, you can have one audience lean much more towards an introspective, this idea of righteousness. Am I right with God individually, introspectively, reflectively? That, that, that can be their emphasis and their view. And you get words that are translated as righteousness much more often in an English translation, while another audience reads and hears justice and thinks making things right with those around me and what is my social responsibility. And that kind of view takes priority or precedence. And you get uh, words translated, what might be translated as righteousness in an English translated translation might be translated as justice in a Spanish uh, translation, for example. That's one of the examples they discussed. I did not do research myself to, to dig into that. But it causes different responses where, you, you see, what we're doing today is we're, we're pitting things against each other. Like, okay, is it an individual faith or is it social justice? And, oh, we were use the word social justice. Let's throw some political label on that or categorize it with a progressive group. And then that's a bad thing now. Or let's talk about individual responsibility and say that that's a bad thing. And let's attach that to this political group or, or whatever. And it causes all kinds of division. When in reality, what you have is both of those things being valid, right? And both of those things can talk to each other and inform your decision making. And a healthy perspective will value, not devalue, both our local context. So that's what I acknowledge in the book. I write the book from my local context and my understanding, the life I've lived but also valuing the global perspective of the text that we have in the Bible and recognizing that different groups, different cultures will interpret things in different ways. And it's important for all of us to understand that, come to consensus as the community of faith universally. Additionally, things are more complicated by the fact that the Bible, when we're talking about the Bible itself, that means different things to different people as well. You've got the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible. Uh, the, that, that's what holds the sacred words of God to some people. For other people, the New Testament carries more weight. Um, there's additional books in some traditions, what some people call the Apocrypha, which other people might even take issue or offense to even it being labeled that way. But those are elevated by others, uh, those additional books. And so it requires humility. It requires great humility to engage historical documents in the first place, but historical documents of this nature. And I think that's one of the first things we need to acknowledge is that these are historical records in that they were written at some point in real time by real people in real circumstances. And those circumstances, those cultural factors, they matter. And to remove the humanity from the Bible and pretend the pages of the Bible were just like beamed down by God through some cosmic projector and people acting as robots just copied them down, 
is not taking the Bible seriously. And that is just the human surface level issue of the Bible. We haven't even gotten into the, the fact that it, the claim is that it's divinely inspired. Um, and again, all of this that I'm saying right now is not in the book, this, this part. Um, and as, as far as divine inspiration, I believe it is. I believe it is divinely inspired. I also believe that many pieces of music that are composed by musicians are divinely inspired. I believe there's many books and many writings out there today that are divinely inspired. Inspiration, as I see it, is an active, dynamic process. And it is active in the mind. And it takes two to tango, so to speak. So we are not passive recipients in the process. We write, we create, we compose, we choreograph. We do all of these things with our hearts and our souls and emotions and intellect and our experiences. And that's how God interacts with us. That's how he interacts with us now. And we, we generally accept that and say, yeah, that makes sense. But then sometimes we ignore that that must have been how he interacted with people in ancient times as well. And to ignore that is really just, I believe, an expression of arrogance on our part. And so we can acknowledge that God meets people where they are and allows them to write and add in their flair and their opinion and their twist on things. And it doesn't have to be completely, perfectly infallible in that regard. And it can still be divinely inspired by a holy God. It does not make it any less revelatory. What matters most of all is what is its purpose and I would argue the purpose of the Bible is to reveal Christ to us. I, I admit and concede that that would not be what entire religions would say is the purpose of the main purpose of the Bible in, in large groups of people. So I acknowledge that. I'm talking from a Christian faith perspective here. Um, we just we just need to be careful. Again, this isn't in the book either, but um, let's take Revelation as an example. And some people are just so bent on wanting it to reveal this secret as though it has written, as though it was written 2,000 years ago for us now to uncover some geopolitical plot in our day and figure out things about uh, governments around the world or whether there's going to be chips in us or not to uh, do financial transactions or the new world order and all of these things as though it was written 2000 years ago for some uh, political secret context that we're supposed to make sense of today. There's movies about this. There's books written about this. There's entire movements related to, to this way of thinking. Um, and we, and we get caught up in all of that instead of realizing the most logical and most sensible reading when you go through Revelation, is that it was revealing truth for the people of that day and time, which is really that Jesus is everything. And they were going through um, tremendous persecution, and there were struggles, whether you 
want to say that it was written earlier in that first century or towards the end of the first century, um, whether it was foretelling something or looking back and explaining something, you can't get around the ginormous cataclysmic event of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And for us to just kind of brush that aside and dismiss that and say, well, now let's, let's make sense of it in our um, world today. I just don't know if that's taking the Bible seriously. Okay, and, and the reason I bring that up is because that's the claim that, that those people would make is that we're not taking the Bible seriously by trying to figure out all these secrets and predictions and prophecies in our day and time. Um, and I think to take the Bible seriously, we recognize that the prophecy that is unveiled most of all, more than anything else, is the power and beauty of Jesus. Sometimes we're guilty of using the Bible and idolizing the Bible as though it holds the truth that saves people. It does not. Jesus does. All right, so I covered a lot of stuff here that's not in the book. Let me talk briefly about what is in the book. There are some tips, I guess you could say, some strategies I offer in the book of ways to approach the Bible in what I would say is a healthy manner. One of them is prescription versus description. Uh, prescription versus description. And... Uh, that that is summarized by this. Just because something is described in the Bible, telling us what happened then, it does not mean it all. It is always being prescribed as instruction for what should happen now. Just because something is biblical does not mean it is Christian. Now, I think we have obvious examples of this with animal sacrifice, polygamy, slavery. These things are realities that we encounter in the Bible. So in one sense, that makes them biblical in that sense. But they're clearly not honoring to Christ necessarily. Uh, well, not even necessarily. Obviously, things like slavery are completely uh, the antithesis of what Christ's teachings are about. And I think there's a piece to this, and I, I do unpack this in the book about Understanding the Old Testament, now I'm using Christian language here, the, the common Christian language about how we talk about the Bible with Old and New Covenant or Old and New Testament language. The Old Testament is getting at this national identity of Israel. There's lots of specifics. There's lots of how-tos. Do this, do that in terms of your nation building in that ancient context. Lots of rules, regulations, um, and commands. Then you have in the New Testament, which is very different <clears throat> because it's the about the community of faith centered on Jesus. And it's not telling us a bunch of how-tos in terms of how you build the church. It's declaring for us that the church has already been established and built by God. I mean, Jesus is recorded as coming right out and saying that, I will build my church. It's not for you to build. And so it's not a bunch of do this, do that. It's a bunch of here's what's been done on the spiritual realm by God. And then what we have throughout the New Testament is a lot of illustrations of how we then function organically within that context. So we see that the church is like a field. The church is like a family. The church is like a body. And the parts come together and function a certain way. That it's all about how it is operating as a living organism, and we are a part of it. Um, God is the vine. We are the branches. So there's a lot of uh, things in nature that are used to depict this uh, organic expression 
of the church. And it's telling us not to go build the church in this manner. It's telling us the church already exists in this manner because God built it that way. So prescription versus description, that's on page 37 in the book. Dissertation versus dialogue, page 38. Um, and the, the diversity and debate inherent in this kind of text in, in the scripture is healthy and only serves to validate its strength, not negate it, because that's what we find is a lot of diversity. And I think um, certain traditions and faith movements do a better job than this, at this than others in terms of allowing people to uh, debate the interpretations of Scripture and take away different meanings and being okay with that as you're working towards consensus and understanding that that's a messy process and that's okay. Um, and then there's a section in there that Jesus has authority over the Bible. Right, Jesus has authority over the Bible, and we need to submit the word to the word. And I um, unpack some things about the Bible's view and treatment of women and the Sabbath, which I already mentioned. And with all of that, uh, what I what I want to say in closing here is that you should leave chapter three with greater appreciation and respect for the Bible, not less. And more importantly you should leave chapter 3 with a greater reverence and appreciation for Jesus. And that needs to be the main takeaway, is that Christ is elevated over and above the Bible. So I will close by reading an excerpt from chapter 3. It's page 34 and 35. And so just in the middle of a section here, I'm just going to read this, and then uh, we'll be done. Many well-intended religious people and professing Christians will tell you that you have to follow the Bible. No, you don't. Adherence to other world religions might label Christians as people of the book. We do ourselves no favors when we agree with that label. We follow a person, not a book. Reading and studying the Bible is never the ultimate goal of the Christ follower. In the end of religion, Bruxy Cavey puts it this way, Christ followers value the Bible, not because of its inherent value, but because of its derived value. Its value comes from the treasure it points us toward. <clears throat> While I appreciate the Bible for many reasons and find it beneficial for study, personal reflection, devotion, and meditation, it is not essential for salvation. The Bible is not essential for knowing how to follow Jesus. It is not essential for obedience to Christ nor is it a pathway for life for the believer. The genuine follower today needs only to be obsessed with one thing, Jesus of Nazareth. There are millions of genuine followers of Christ on the planet today who don't have access to read or hear the Bible in their language. Much of the population of Jesus' day were illiterate and had no means to engage the scriptures. Moreover, let's not forget the obvious fact that the Bible as we know it did not even exist while the early church experienced its most explosive growth in the first centuries after Christ's death and resurrection. Reliance on the Bible as the way to redemption with God or the path to heaven will result in a distorted and abusive religion. Reliance on the Spirit of Christ alone for transformation will result in freedom and love. If I had to choose between my daughters knowing all the laws and commands of Moses and Israelite history 
or knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's a no-brainer. Thank you for joining me on another <clears throat> episode as we unpack this book called You Don't Have to Do That. Again, in the episode notes, you can find ways to get the book. If you would like to explore any of these topics in greater depth, then you can leave a comment on any of the episodes. To learn more about simple church practices on your own, you can visit Grace in Motion, uh, which is a website as well. If you're interested in supporting my work, the best things that you can do are, one, um, go on to Amazon and post a positive review of the book there if you would be inclined to do so. And two, subscribe and share my Substack work here um, as well. And I think that closes us out. So thanks so much for listening and have a great day.